what we do and missions and church planting and answering the call to, of Jesus to go to the nations, it's a glorious thing, but it comes with a price tag, and part of that is that we only get to come back as a family about once every three years, but this coming summer is that time, and so we're looking forward to being here in 2016. Can you believe that? 2016, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, this is... This is, as we're crossing the Jordan here, this is my 40th anniversary of being at my first November conference. My first one was November 1975. Was anybody else here, or it was over at Montreat actually, November 1975? You know, what, what a remarkable thing. Now, of course, we're only, what, five and a half weeks or so from 2016, and at that conference, we were just on the verge of 1976. Does that sound like a long time ago? Let's just take a moment just to remember just how long ago that was. Jimmy Carter, in 1976, that was the year he got elected President of the United States. Gasoline, and I looked this up, gasoline was 59 cents a gallon. And Bob Hope was advertising it. The average house, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half, two-bedroom ranch house, the average house in the United States was sold that year for $43,000. Nadia Comaneci won three gold medals at the Olympics that year. Barry Manilow <laughs> was actually a top recording artist at the time. That was the year that the Concorde jet took its first commercial flight. That was the year that the Matsumushu company came out with the VHS cassette and defeated the Betamax version. If you remember the VHS Beta Wars, VHS won. And that was also the year that the Apple computer company was founded by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. 1976. Uh, 2016 makes that seem like a long time ago. And yet, here we are. God has brought us to this point. And the question that we are wrestling with as people, as families, and as a ministry called CBU, the question is simply, what are we going to do now that we're at this point? Are we going to walk forward in faith or throw in the towel and say God is done with us? Now, after hearing this message last night and after interacting with the Bible and after getting to know God as I know him, the only answer I can give is let us go forward. Let us walk into this thing that God has for us. And as we contemplate this this morning, um, I'm going to do this in a two-part way, the part A and, and part B. The, the first part is I'm going to teach the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible and lay a Bible foundation for where we want to go. Then we'll take a, a five-minute break, and we're going to come back, and then we're going to speak in very practical terms what this means for us as a ministry. But... I've called the, the Bible talk this morning, Give Me This Mountain. 
We're going to be looking at the life of Caleb this morning for just a few minutes, reflecting on what to me is just a remarkable man in the Bible. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 and in Joshua chapter 14. And as we're interacting with this, we're, we're asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us and, and come and to give us some sense, to paint some kind of a picture, to, to drop not only faith in our heart, but clarity in our heart in terms of what it is that the Lord is, is doing. And I so appreciated Jim's ministry last night in terms of this is just the, the, the realm he operates in, but unpacking this in a, this is what God is doing in a global sense. And I very much feel like what God is leading us into as a ministry is very much linked in with what God is doing in the earth today. Our destiny is not hiding in a cave. Our destiny is to cross this Jordan. And so we're going to be in Numbers 13 and Joshua 14. Let's just pray before we look at this and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Looking back at 1976, looking forward to 2016, Lord, what a journey this has been. But you haven't brought us to this point over these 40 years for us to throw in the towel here. Lord, you've brought us here so that we can go forward into the thing that you have for us. So God, as we interact with your word this morning, just ask you to come by your Holy Spirit, drop clarity, paint pictures, grant vision, and grant us faith, O oh God. Move upon our hearts that we might believe your word. Open our minds to understand your word. And grant us strength by your spirit to obey your word this morning, we pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to just read a, a text here, and then we'll go back and, and then forward. So just to orient us, in Numbers 13, chapter, chapter 13, starting in verse 17, this is what the Bible says. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, go back and in your Bible, underline or circle or just make a mental note back in verse 17 where it says, go up into the hill country. Now, this is Numbers 13, and this is approximately two years after the Exodus. It is what, if you just walk it straight through, it's a two-week walk from Egypt up to the Promised Land. The Exodus could have been accomplished very quickly. Now, of course, it's one thing to get people out of Exodus, or people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of people. And God had to park his people at Sinai to do some covenant business. God had to begin this process of taking slaves and making them 
unslaves because there was a destiny for them to fulfill. And so what we just read in Numbers really comes out of some of the first promises that God spoke to Moses. For example, in Exodus 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you, Israel, to be my people, and I will be your God. This is one of the primary covenantal constructions in the Old Testament. God's declarations of intent, like a, a marriage covenant, I will be your people, I will be your God, you will be my people. God has always dreamed to have a people for his possession. That is the heart of the covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant are unified with that thought that God is possessing for himself a people. But not only a people, there's also the promise of a place. When he first appeared to Moses, he said, I promise you, in Exodus 3.17, I promise you, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. Now the rest of the book of Exodus and Numbers and what we're reading here in Numbers 13, this all comes out of the fact that God made a promise. So at the very heart of this whole story is really this question. Is God a God who keeps his promise? Or is he not? Is God going to drop the ball? Or can he take us through to the other side? God promised there in Exodus 3, 17, I will do this thing. And so as you know the story, as you read this story before in Numbers 13, ultimately, there's a group of people who decide, actually, no, I don't think God can keep his promise. Now, to say it as bluntly as that, that would just be kind of jarring. And so, doubt and unbelief are always packaged in very sophisticated terms. We're going to see that. And so, here in Numbers 13, as we reflect on this text that we just read, if you look at this remit that Moses gave the people, these spies, one from each tribe, it was not to determine whether or not they should take the land. This was simply a mission to discover what kind of land it was that they were going to take. In other words, Moses was exploring methodology, not theology. He wasn't questioning whether or not God was going to keep his promise. Moses was simply, in pragmatic terms, exploring. Guys, go see what kind of a land this is because the details, the facts, the, the on-the-ground realities will influence our methodology. But we're not going to question the theology of whether or not God keeps his promise. What happens in this story is that some of the spies slip from a methodological exploration into a theological exploration, and they end up in a bad and a dark place. And so, the spies go and they do this thing, they go wander around, they, they come back, and as we look at this report that the, the spies gave, they give facts, and then we see two different responses. We see a fear response, and we see a faith response. In verse 7, we get the facts. There's some good facts. And they told them, We came to the land in which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. And this is its 
fruit. Now, those are facts. All the spies were able to say that. They were able to say, this is a good land, and it's filled with fruit. If we just pause right there, this is an encouraging verse. Fruitfulness is part of our destiny. There is fruit in the promised land. Crossing the Jordan involves fruitfulness. Now, that's an opportunity to say yay and amen and hallelujah. Because we like fruitfulness, yes? The opposite of that is dryness and lack of fruit. And John 15, Jesus didn't say happy thoughts about all that. So fruitfulness is good. There's fruit here. But then there's also some bad facts. In verses 28 and verse 29, they say, however, the people who dwell in this land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and a whole bunch of ites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So not only is fruitfulness part of our destiny, giants and strong fortified cities are also part of our destiny. The promised land isn't just fruit. The promised land is warfare. The promised land is occupation and resistance and learning how to slay giants. Now, the next thing that we get is what I call fear report. First, we had the fact report, and the facts are real simple. There's fruit, and there's giants. It's good, and it's hard. Now, those are just honest observations, but then we get the theological mistake that 10 out of these 12 spies made. Verses 31 and 32, after observing the facts, here's the conclusion that they reached. We are not able to go up against this people, for they stronger than we. Now you can already, you're mature Christians, you already discern what is wrong with that statement right there. They are stronger than we. Was that ever the question? Uh-uh. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. What is a bad report? It's a doubt report. It's an unbelief report. It has nothing to do with accurately observing facts. It is not trust. That's the bad report about the land that they had spied, saying this land through which we've gone out to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants. This thing is just so big, so hard, so difficult. We can't do it, guys. We are better off in Egypt. Let's go eat onion and garlic by the Nile and go make some more brick. That's a happier destiny than fighting giants and trying to take these hard cities in the promised land. What was God thinking? Now, the good news here is that that is not the end of the story. Amen. Verse 30. But Caleb quietened the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Praise God for a man of Caleb's faith. Let us at once 
let us at once go up and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Now, let me just make some observations here about the contrast between these two reports that came back to the people. Now, the issue is not facts. The issue is perspective. They all saw the same good facts. They all saw a land flowing with milk and honey. They all saw the fruit of the land. They all wanted the fruit. They also all saw the same bad facts. They all saw the giants. They all saw the fortified cities. Caleb was not in denial about that. Life is a mix of facts. There's not only no one in here's life. If you listen to the prophecies last night, if you're honest and you look at your own life, all of us, our lives have been a mix of good facts and bad facts. If you only see bad facts, then there's stuff in your life you're not thankful for. If you only see good facts, you're delusional and not in touch with reality. All of us, our lives have been a mixture. That's not a problem. Recognizing and being honest Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. We sing that song, yes? And that is the way our lives go. There's good stuff, there's bad stuff. Welcome to life. That is the, the thing into which we have been born. The issue isn't facts. The issue is perspective. There's two perspectives in this story. There's the perspective of fear and the perspective of faith. Now, when we use this word perspective... It simply means this is the lens through which we interpret reality. It's not that we are disagreeing over these or what the facts are. The question is, how will we interpret what it is that we're looking at? Will we do it with a perspective of fear, or will we do it with a perspective of faith? That's the question that these spies were operating on. Now, Fear, in this case, if you read this report that the, the ten spies brought back, fear assumes the non-intervention of God. What did they say? They are stronger than we. They're assuming we're on our own. Now, let's be honest. The truth is, if we are on our own, these ten spies are right. Fear assumes the non-intervention of God. The stuff God's calling us to, he better show up or we are in a heap of trouble. And that's what faith is. Faith assumes the intervention of God. Crossing the Jordan assumes God is going with us. This is not a what can we do on our own question. It never has been. Now, Another observation here is that the only way the promises of God are experienced is by faith. There is no other way to, to get this done or to, to, to package this. We, we have to be people of faith. You know, faith is not something that just kind of got invented through Bible meditation and you know the, the, the 20th century. This is, you know, the book of Hebrews was written a long time ago, the hall of faith. This is the nature of the Christian life. Going back to this chapter in Exodus 3, when God's speaking to Moses, 
It's all based on his promises. So faith simply believes what God has promised to do to the degree that we say yes to what he's asking us to do. Experiencing the promises means we have to act on what it is that God has promised. But on the other hand, what fear does, fear distorts reality. Look in, if you're there in Numbers 13 and 14, look in chapter 14, verse 3. This is an example of fear distorting reality. They say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? What an amazing statement. Do you see how reality has become distorted? They're saying, wow, if we obey God, if I take my children with me on this mission, they're going to become prey. The devil will get them somehow. I better go find a cave to hide in. Fear distorts reality. Slavery in Egypt is better than possessing with faith. It's not true, but within the twisted logic of fear, what these spies say kind of makes sense. They're operating, though, from false presuppositions. The last observation here, this one strikes us close to home, is that faith is often in the minority. There were ten spies that doubted. There were only two that believed and had faith, Joshua and Caleb. Now, why is it that faith is often in a minority? Why is it that doubt and unbelief are typically more popular than a position of faith? Well, it might be because faith exposes the pockets of doubt and unbelief that are lurking and hiding in our own soul. When you get around a strong person of faith, sometimes it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because it exposes in your own heart some pocket where you haven't been trusting the Lord. Now make no mistake, God is calling us to be a people of faith. But don't think that this journey of faith is going to simply be filled with uneventful happiness. It's a, it's a mixed life. The idea of being Joshua and Caleb, doesn't that sound inspiring? It's lonely to be Joshua and Caleb. There were ten spies saying, let's don't do this thing. Look in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. This is the Joshua and Caleb perspective. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they're bred for us. Their protection's removed, and the Lord's with us. Do not fear them. Now, that is a faith declaration. Joshua and Caleb saying, are not saying we're great. They're saying God is great, and because God's great, we can do this thing. But what did the people do? Did they respond to faith with faith? 
No, look in verse 10. Then all the congregation wanted to stone them with stones. Fear wants to stone faith. What an amazing thing. Fear wants to stone faith because faith convicts and exposes fear for what it is. But at this moment, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. God showed up and flexed his muscles. Now, an example of that would simply be, you know, it's a whole lot easier to, you know, I always do this. When I am back in the States for a little while, I just turn on the radio and listen to American radio because I don't get it. Just, just these little things like that that you, you miss. And, you know, it's, I, I'm, always, I'm always surprised in, in, in listening to a lot, lot of the stuff that's marketed. And um, um, fear sells. Financial collapse sells. I've heard 13 different commercials on some program I need to sign up for to find out about the economic collapse that's getting ready to happen next week. Um, eschatological books in Christian circles that predict the demise sell a whole lot more than books filled with faith and hope. Um, I mean, when we go back to 1976, this is when there were books. 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, you know. Buy your box of beans and hide. Find a cave and make it good. Um, come out with a book next week. It would sell if it's filled with fear. Those people of fear like to surround. Fate convicts fear. Faith tends to be in the minority. Um, it's a whole lot easier to fear a Muslim migration from Syria into Germany than it is to look at that with the perspective of faith. You say, actually, this is God strategically rearranging the puzzle. How many of us want to go be missionaries in Syria to reach Muslims? I'd rather plant a church in Germany and reach them there and then send them back to their own country. That's a faith perspective. But you're not going to get that from the mainline media. I'm not guessing. Now, this is the background. And this scene that we just read about here, Joshua and Caleb and these spies, this was just two years after they had left Egypt. Two years proved to be an insufficient time to get Egypt out of the heart of these former slaves. All they knew was fear. They were not ready to rise up. and They did not yet know their God well enough to respond with faith to the report of faith. See, there's two parts of this equation. There's the report of faith, and there's the response of faith. And they were unready to respond, but... When we fast forward to the end of the story, because we know how this goes, there were 38 more years of wandering in the wilderness. This generation died off, and then there was another generation, completely new, that was able to go in. 
cross the Jordan and possess it. There were, however, or there was a remnant. There were two people. There was a remnant from that older generation that made it across the Jordan. That was Joshua and Caleb. Those are the ones who were able to see with the eyes of faith. And if we fast forward to Joshua chapter 14, we get to see this story resolve in, in a beautiful kind of way. So turn with me and Actually, this is, this is so good. Let's just look here in Joshua 14. And to get this in context, I think we'll start in verse 1. No, verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me, they made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke on that day for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for our inheritance. Now this is an incredibly rich passage for a whole variety of reasons. It's really rich. You know, when Caleb was 40, when Caleb was a young man, he saw with the eyes of faith. He knew how the story was going to play out. He knew his God. He knew the promise. He saw with the eyes of faith when he was 40, but he could not at that time enter in because the hearts of the people melted. And so, his destiny was, in a sense, sabotaged by their unbelief. He spoke with a voice of faith, but he was delayed in receiving this promise. He had to wait to cross the Jordan. He couldn't do it when he was a 40-year-old man. He had to wait. 
But as he persevered, as an older guy, he kept his faith. And he fought with faith, with focus, with this vision of possessing this thing that the Lord had promised him. And he came here and he comes to Joshua, his other partner in faith when they were a young man, saying, Joshua, you remember what Moses, the servant of the Lord, spoke. You remember these words, Joshua. Now, it's time. It's time. Give me this mountain. This thing that the Lord promised me. At this point, 45 years before. Now think about the life of Caleb for just a minute. Think about this life. He was 40 years old when he saw with the eyes of faith. That means he was 38 when he left Egypt. 40 years old when he went in and spied out the land. He had 38 more years wandering in the world. So he was 78 years old when he crossed the Jordan. Now, we just pause right there. Some people, they cross that line into the 70s, they start thinking. This is not God talking. This is the world talking. Cross that line into the 70s and start thinking, well, I did my bit. Now it's time for the next generation to go do their thing. Now it's time for my extended vacation. And you know what they point to? They'll point to Moses on Mount Nebo. They say, well, I'm going to go find my Mount Nebo. And I'm going to go retire somewhere and let this younger generation go do this thing. You know, on this Moses and Nebo thing, you know why Moses was on Nebo? It wasn't because he lacked faith. It was because he sinned. That was his issue. It wasn't his age. It wasn't his energy. He sinned. That's why he couldn't go across. Joshua and Caleb, though, were part of this deal. Caleb is 78 years old when he crossed the Jordan. Now, what did he do for the next seven years? He fought. He picked up his sword, and he conquered and went after those giants, and he went after those fortified cities, and he walked with the people of God as a 78-year-old man to lay hold of this possession that he saw when he was 40 years old. That is the spirit of faith. That's what we're asking God to give us. Because I want to believe that there's a spirit of Joshua and Caleb that remains in this family. That's what we're here to believe and lay hold of. Seven years of fighting in the promised land before he received in his inheritance. Now that's a beautiful story. And we could stop there. But there's one more thing. It's just a little bit deeper. Caleb's inheritance was Hebron. Hebron is a very significant city in the Old Testament. That's where the patriarchs were buried. Caleb's inheritance was the legacy of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
he wasn't just fighting for a random bit of real estate. Caleb was fighting for the original promises of faith that God made to his people. Now, Hebron is in very close proximity to the city of Jerusalem. Caleb, if you remember the 12 spies, they each came from one of the tribes. What's Caleb's tribe? Judah. Caleb is the representative fighting for the land of Judah and the hill country that includes the city of Jerusalem. Now, what happened in Jerusalem? Well, there was a Lamb of God who lived and who died and who rose again. All of that happened in the inheritance Caleb received. Salvation. Salvation for the world. Salvation for the nations. What did God tell Abraham? Come out and I will bless you and you will bless the nations. Your seed, your seed Jesus. Caleb's fight wasn't just for real estate so his great-grandchildren could build a nice house. He was fighting in the spirit for the real estate through which and on which God was going to accomplish salvation for the nations. As we contemplate crossing this Jordan, there's nothing less at stake than salvation for the nations. You know, many of us in here are a little bit older than we were in 1976. Some of you can identify with Caleb. Some of you might be able to identify with Moses. I don't think anybody's 120 in here yet, though. Crossing the Jordan is not the end. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning. It's the end of one era, as Jim eloquently portrayed for us last night. But it's the starting of a new era. We see that with Elijah and Elisha. We see that with Moses and Joshua. We see that with wilderness and promised land. The good news for us is that in some ways as a ministry, we're just now crossing into the thing that God has for us. The past 40 years have served their purpose, but it's not now time to go climb in a cave and say, that was nice. Joshua and Caleb say, give me this mountain. Because this mountain means salvation for the nations. Now for Caleb, crossing this Jordan meant he still had seven years of fight left in him to get this thing done. God is going to use our fight of faith bring salvation to the nations. It's exactly what God's going to do. Well, let's go to God in prayer and just ask him to help us with this.
Living God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that these things are written here for our behalf. Father, we confess that sometimes when we encounter strong faith, it does intimidate us. It exposes our pocket to doubt and unbelief and insecurity. Lord, we thank you for men like Joshua and Caleb, that minority report, who will stand up in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds and say, our God is able to give us possession of this land. Not because they're arrogant, but because they simply believe your promise. Living God, we're asking you that you come and grant us the spirit of Joshua and Caleb. There remains a promised land for the people of God. Lord, there remains something in the spirit for us to fight for, for us to believe for, for us to extend our faith and lay hold of as an inheritance. And it's not for us, O oh God. It's for the future. It's for salvation for the nations. Living God, as we stand at this moment, as we contemplate walking through this Jordan, as we contemplate building a memorial and just all that's involved in crossing the Jordan, living God, we're asking that you would visit us with this spirit of Joshua and Caleb. We pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name, give us this mountain. Give us this mountain, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take a five-minute break now, and everybody say five minutes. Now, 